Hello and welcome to Hillcrest To Go. I'm your host, John Parker. Today, Dr. Tom Goodman continues his series, The Gospel of John. Today's message is titled, Putting Our Resources in His Hands. Now, an important message from Dr. Tom Goodman. You know, almost daily we come up against a need that cannot possibly be met by our limited resources. Maybe it's a personal need in our own lives, or maybe it's a need that gathers national attention. But we very quickly realize that our money, our available time, and our abilities can hardly make a dent in the problem that has come to our attention. So we conclude, Big needs, small resources, ain't it a shame, end of the story, rinse and repeat. But a few years ago, I ran across a story about a boy named Trevor. He was only 11 when he saw on the evening news that there were people in the downtown of his city of Philadelphia who were going to sleep that night outdoors in the middle of the winter. And he would not go to bed until his parents conceded, agreed, to take him downtown. And the first person he saw asleep on a subway grate, he told his parents to stop the car. He got out and he gave that man his little pillow and his little yellow blanket from his own bed. Uh, A few days later, he had collected more blankets and persuaded his parents to bring him back into downtown and he distributed those blankets and pretty soon one thing led to another and it developed into an ever-expanding ministry service of providing food and and clothing and shelter to those who were the most vulnerable it's an organization that's still around today even though Trevor is now an adult and the organization in Philadelphia is called Trevor's House Back when he was a little boy, a TV reporter got hold of the story and asked him why he did it, and he said, it's Jesus inside that makes me want to do this. Trevor became a national sensation simply because he took what he had and did something with it instead of talking himself out of what he could not do with what he did not have. Every one of us as adults could use a little bit of that childlike responsiveness of Trevor taking what we have and doing something with it instead of doing nothing with the meager resources that we have. Uh, So often we see a need and we get this impulse to do something about it. And then we talk ourselves out of it because we decide that the resources we have will hardly make a dent in the problem. But Jesus expects us to do what we can with what we have instead of deciding what we cannot do with what we do not have. Why do I know this? Because of the story in the Bible about Jesus taking a a boy's sack lunch and feeding a multitude with it. Now, this story shows up in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but in our Sunday-by-Sunday study through the Gospel of John, we reach this story now in John chapter 6. Let's begin with the first eight verses. 
and we're going to put them up on these TV screens for those of you in the auditorium. Those of you who are watching at home, you see it on your own TV screen or computer screen. Uh, God willing, we're going to have these uh, large screens on the wall back in operation again next week. So we thank you for your patience, those of you in the building, for having to watch them on these, on these TV screens for a while. But uh, it just takes a little bit longer to uh, get services and get, uh, uh, get material sent to you during this pandemic. So we're still looking at it on these temporary TV screens. But let's take a look at John chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will that, uh, they go among so many? And we'll look at the rest of this story in just a moment, but notice how Jesus had drawn his apostles off to a remote location, away from the demands of the crowd, so they might have kind of a retreat setting with Jesus so they could get their batteries recharged. But the crowd found them anyway. Now this in and of itself is a kind of parable of our lives. For many of us, we get into church-going activities as a kind of a re retreat with Jesus, away from the demands and the pressures and the stresses of our world, and yet the demands and the pressures and the stresses of our world find us in our little retreat with Jesus anyway. We come to church-going activities, and maybe a speaker comes to talk about the ministry that he or she is involved in and why there's a great need for you to support that ministry. Or maybe we show a video from the International Mission Board or one of our other ministry partners that reveals just how much need there is in the world. Or maybe just a little illustration like I shared about Trevor in this sermon or an illustration that your Sunday school teacher shares in the Sunday school lesson all of a sudden reminds you again of how broken this world is. We come to church, we think, to get away with Jesus in our own little personal retreat with him and yet the needs and the pressures and the demands of the world come to us anyway. That's what we find in the story in John chapter 6. These guys got away from the crowds with Jesus, and yet the crowds found them anyway. Now, we are told that this crowd was made up of about 5,000 men. In that day and age, uh, the uh, women and the children weren't often counted in a census, and so that's the way it was here. There were about 5,000 men. Of course, there were women and children in this gathering as well. In fact, some scholars estimate that there were as many as 15 to 17,000 people who had broken in on Jesus' little retreat with his apostles so that they might learn more from the teaching of Jesus. Now, I said that this story is reported in all four Gospels, but it's only in the Gospel of John that Jesus singles out one of his particular apostles. This was Philip, as you see in the story. And so he asks Jesus, Jesus asked Philip specifically, what's your guess, Philip? How much would it cost to feed all these people that are coming toward us? Now, why do you think it was Philip 
specifically that Jesus focused on. Now we're not told, but maybe Philip especially needed this instruction to trust Jesus with limited resources. In his book on the apostles called 12 Ordinary Men, John MacArthur said, Philip was the type of person who in every meeting says, I don't think we can do this. <laughs> he was the master of the impossible. And that may be so. You know, we get glimpses in the four gospels of the distinct personality types of the apostles, the distinct problems or challenges or weaknesses that they had, because Jesus addresses some of them by name specifically. And so there are those stories in the Bible of how Jesus specifically addressed Thomas's doubt and pessimism. Or we see some other passages in the Gospels where Jesus specifically addresses the racial and cultural pride and the hair-trigger temper of those two brothers, John and James. In fact, they were specifically called Boerigines, the sons of thunder. That says something about their uh, hair-trigger temper and their cultural pride. He repeatedly had to address Simon Peter's shallow commitments that often were nothing more than public bluster that quickly faded away when the going got tough. So there are several times within the scriptures where Jesus addresses certain apostles by name. And that doesn't mean that the other apostles didn't have these problems. But Jesus was, was specifically addressing these guys and all of us by extension, and that's what we find here. Uh, so Jesus tested Philip in this particular place. That's the word here. Our text says when Jesus said, how are we going to feed all these people? He wasn't asking for a plan. He, he wasn't calling a council of his generals to come together and tell him what he ought to do with the situation. He already knew what he was going to do, but he was testing Philip. Now, considering how quickly Philip answered this question from Jesus, he was probably already calculating it. He was probably one of those personality types like some of us in the room, kind of a more administrative personality type, a planner, somebody who looks ahead, who anticipates problems and sort of gets the ducks in a row in anticipation of dealing with those problems that are going to come up. That must have been the way that Philip was because he answered Jesus' question so quickly. You could almost hear that, that one of those old clacking adding machines going on in his head as he was thinking, okay, now one denarius, that'll buy 12 wheat biscuits, but barley's cheaper, so we can get away with 20 wheat uh, barley biscuits if we go with this. Now, if we get the small ones and we divide it in half, no, that's not going to work at all. You can hear this going on in his mind because he answers Jesus so quickly. As John MacArthur put it in his book on the 12 apostles, he knew too much arithmetic to be adventurous. I think that's the way some of us are. It may be that you're in one of those crisis times now, and you're asking the question, where are we going to get the money? Where am I going to find the time? What if the doctor is right? Why isn't anyone hiring? But it's these very crisis times that can open the door to a greater recognition of how trustworthy Jesus really is. There are numerous people within this room and watching online who could tell us the same thing. Philip could certainly tell us that through his experience in this story. Now, as it turns out, it was uh, another uh, of the apostles, Andrew, who uh, brought to Jesus a boy who had had the forethought, or maybe his mother had the forethought, to pack a sack lunch for him of barley loaves and fish. Uh, now, when you, when you think of the fact that John specifically mentions the detail that it was barley loaves, that's interesting because it was the poor man's grain. 
which just emphasizes even more how plain and simple these resources are in front of them. You can imagine the apostles going out into this group and wondering if anybody had, when they rushed out of the house to go find Jesus, had even thought to bring anything with them, and only one person had done so, and it was a boy with some loaves and fish. Now, when we think of a loaf of bread today, we think of that packaged up, sliced up thing that we can buy at the store, and it will take us through several days of breakfast toast and lunch sandwiches. But the loaf in this particular instance was more what we would call a dinner roll today. And so you could think of it as a biscuit or a dinner roll. And he had five of these and he had two small fish. So it was no surprise that Andrew reported his meager findings and he said, but how far will that go among so many? The reality is that our resources up against a world of need looks so much like a boy's sack lunch up against a multitude of people who are getting hungrier and hungrier. There's something very impractical about this business called church business. In every other business, in retail business, in the restaurant business, in the business of the military, what you do is you look at what you have You look at perhaps what you anticipate having next year and you make your decisions within those resources. But there's something very impractical about church work where we start with the challenge first. We start with what absolutely must be done first and then we back up and try to figure out how in the world are we going to do it. Now I've sat in a lot of leadership meetings in church where we operate as other businesses operate, where we decide what we have and we decide what we think we might have with the offerings next year, and we operate within that footprint. We make our decisions about what we uh, are going to do based upon what we think we can do. And, And a lot of times, I think that's a good way to operate. Either that or I'm too much like the administrator like Philip was. I don't know. But I I actually do think that year in and year out and most of the times when we're establishing a budget, that's the way we ought to think. But there are those times where the Spirit of Christ is saying to us, here's a need. How are you going to meet it? And we sense that Jesus is not going to let us off the hook by coming to a conclusion about what we cannot do based upon what we do not have. We could all use a little more of that childlike innocence of little Trevor who saw the need of homelessness and acted with whatever he had instead of deciding that he couldn't act at all because he didn't have enough. But now aren't you glad that there is more to this story because the rest of the story in John shows us that our resources for meeting a world in need are indeed meager until we put them in the hands of the master. So let's go back to the story. John chapter 6, this time starting in verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. And Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. 
So Jesus took this meager little lunch of loaves and fish into his hands, and from his hands came a miracle of multiplication. Now, I'm not a mathematician, but I think this is the only time in history where multiplication took place out of division. It seems that no one but the apostles really knew what was going on at this point. Everybody was sitting around, they were passing the baskets around, and every time somebody received the basket and reached in, there were still plenty of loaves and still plenty of fish, so much so that at the end, it says that when they gathered up the scraps, when they gathered up the leftovers, there were 12 baskets full. Now, it may have been there's so much that is symbolic in the Gospel of John that there was some symbolism about the 12 tribes here, but really, I think what's simply going on is that this uh, report of the leftovers was letting us know just how abundant this meal actually was. Verse 12 says they all had enough to eat. The Gospel of Mark puts it this way, they all ate and were satisfied. This was one of those abundant, loosen your belt, push away from the table, go take a nap kind of meal. This is one of those indications that probably the earliest apostles were actually Baptists after all. And what a relief to know that our resources in his hands become sufficient resources. If he is going to expect us to take care of a world in need, it is a relief to know that he is more than sufficient to help us meet the challenge. I can't tell you exactly how it happens, but whenever I as an individual and gri are gripped by something that absolutely must be done, I can't get my mind off it. I just see that need every time I close my eyes. And when I say yes to that challenge, when I say yes to Jesus, and I take whatever resources I have, my time, my money, my abilities become sufficient in the hands of Jesus. And I can't tell you how many times it happens, and I can't tell you how it happens, but I've seen it in churches when a church, when a congregation decides that something must be done, even though we're not certain how we're going to be able to accomplish it, and we turn those resources of ours over to the hands of Jesus, the job gets done. I can't tell you how that happens, but maybe we can approach how that happens through a little devotional I heard one time. A, a woman was writing in about... Uh, her experiences with Jesus, and at one point she wrote this. Last week I was walking at the airport when I looked to my right and noticed a younger man walking briskly, but despite his energetic stride and my more casual pace, I passed him easily. Of course, I was on a people mover and he was not. <laughs> you know, a people mover, it's one of those long conveyor belts, one of those moving sidewalks that you see at uh, uh, airports from time to time to get people moving more quickly and long stretches of time. Well, she continues, having a competitive personality, I was tempted to feel smug about blowing him away in this undeclared race. But even I had to admit that the reason I outpaced him was not might or power or conditioning or superior stride, but because something underneath me was bearing me along. I was walking, but a far more significant factor was that I was walking in the power of the people mover. Now maybe that's what's happening when we step out in faith and we turn our resources over to Jesus. All our little meager resources become useful and sufficient to meet that need because like that woman was in the power of the people mover, we're in the power of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Do you think that Jesus could have fed this multitude without this boy's sack lunch? Absolutely he could. I mean, this is the same Lord who centuries earlier 
in another wilderness, fed the Israelites with manna and quail, took care of their thirst with water from a rock. That was the same Lord who was here in this wilderness setting with all these people around. And yet the fact that Jesus took this boy's lunch of loaves and fishes is instructive to us. That Jesus wants us to turn our resources over to him so that he can do something glorious with them. The amazing thing, the humbling thing about the story is that God wants to make us partners with him in making a difference in the needs of this world. And when we're willing to give him our time and our talents and our other resources, sometimes God waits to meet a need in a community. Sometimes God waits to meet a need in a world until his people trust him enough to give over our time and our talents and our other resources to him and then something takes place. That's what we're finding in the story anyway. And by the way, that's one of the reasons that when it comes to giving of my time and giving of my talents and giving of my abilities, I like to put them in the hands of organizations that meet needs explicitly in the name of Christ. Now, I don't mean to say by that that uh, there are uh, secular causes that aren't worthy of our support. I certainly think there are secular causes that are worthy of our support, sometimes at your workplace, sometimes at a school, uh, sometimes in uh, some of your other organizations, people encourage you to take care of some secular foster care work or some secular medical care group, and it might be worth your investment to participate with others, even who are not believers, in an organization that meets the needs of the world that isn't explicitly doing it in the name of Christ. But I like to contribute to ministries that explicitly do so in the name of Christ. My own church's ministries, for example, or Pregnancy Care Center, or the International Mission Board, or Baptist Global Response. You've heard me talk about BGR before. It's an organization that comes alongside our IMB personnel and they drill water wells, or they provide orphan care, or they uh, help victims of sex trafficking get out of that, and they do all of those things, meeting physical needs explicitly in the name of Christ. Now, why do I prefer to contribute my resources into organizations like that? Any other organization, any other secular organization, when I put my resources in the hands of that executive director, $100 is still $100. But when I take my money and I place it in the executive director's hands known as Jesus Christ, my resources go so much further they could go in any other way. So our call is to meet a world of need, not to decide ahead of time what we're going to do based upon what we have, but to see the challenge, to see the need. And then Christ's promise is when we put our resources in his hands, that's the only way to accomplish the task. Now this crowd that was fed so wonderfully in this story uh, finds Jesus the next day and uh, you can imagine they wanted to hang around somebody like this they had found themselves a cosmic vending machine and so when Jesus sees them all gathering around him next day ready for act two Jesus tells them don't be asking just for these loaves and these fish that you saw me multiply. Ask for the bread from heaven. And they said, give us this bread from heaven so we'll always be satisfied. And Jesus said, I am the bread from heaven. I am the bread of life. You feed on me and you'll have all your needs ultimately met. Now on another Sunday, since we're moving through the Gospel of John, we're gonna get to this extended 
next day encounter that Jesus had uh, with this crowd where they told them that he was the bread of life. And we'll talk about what it means for Jesus to call himself our bread of life. But for now, what I want you to do is just look at the miraculous way he met physical need as a signpost to point to his capability of meeting spiritual need. Now, I don't mean to so sharply juxtapose this like some of us do, because in the Bible, we are called upon to bring our physical needs to God. Didn't Jesus tell us in the Lord's Prayer that we're to pray, give us this day our daily bread? I mean, how many times have we run across commands in the Bible to be generous with our material stuff to people who have need of material stuff? So I don't mean to make this sharp juxtaposition between spiritual need and physical need, but it's still true, isn't it? Which is more important, where our next meal is coming from or the fact that our relationship with God is eternally secure? We need to recognize then that that which so often dominates our minds, our physical needs, is less important than that which ought to dominate our soul, which is our spiritual needs. In the big scheme of things, we need to recognize then that meeting physical need is important, but it's always a signpost pointing to God's ability to meet that which is more urgent and deeper in our soul. So this story is not just about putting our resources in his hands. This story is about putting ourselves in his hands. In fact, you could even say that that is a good summary of the Christian life. What does it mean to become a Christian and grow as a Christian? It means that you put yourself in the hands of Christ, trusting him for your salvation. And then this, you spend the rest of your, the days of your life learning how to put your resources in his hands so that you might become a partner with him and making a difference in this world. Maybe you've heard that old song about the auctioneer in front of a crowd holding up an old, dusty, beat-up violin. And he says, what will you give me for this old violin? Do I hear a dollar? There's a dollar. How about two? Do I hear three? And he can't get the bidding much past three dollars. Not until a mysterious musician comes to the stage and he takes the violin in his hands, he tunes it up, and he begins to mesmerize the crowd with the beautiful music that he can play out of that violin. What made all the difference was whose hands that violin was in. This past week, I uh, released uh, my devotional newsletter on Fridays. I, I send it out every Friday, and I only mention that just to remind you that uh, if you're receiving it, I hope you'll read it. If you're not receiving it, you can sign up for it in our connection card today, our online bulletin. But here's what I said in this last Friday's devotional piece. A violin in my hands will get you some squeaky noise. A violin in the master's hands will get you spectacular music. Marble in my hands is just a rock. Marble in Michelangelo's hands will get you a magnificent David. A tennis racket in my hands is meaningless. A tennis racket in the Williams sisters' hands leads to championships. A golf club in my hands means a lot of hooks to the left and slices to the right. A golf club in the hands of Hideke Matsuyama wins a master's tournament. And two fish and five loaves of bread in my hands will get you a couple of fish sandwiches. But according to John chapter six in Jesus' hands, it will feed thousands. Whose hands hold your life and your resources?
As we get ready to close, those are the relevant questions that we need to respond to. Some of us need to respond today for the first time and become believers. We need to put our life in the hands of Jesus. We need to trust that what he did for us on the cross, he did to bear away our sin so that we might stand clean before God, so that we might have an eternal, secure relationship with God now and forever. We need to put our lives in his hands. But others of us have been Christians for many, many years, and yet here is yet another crisis you're facing. Here is yet another need you know you need to respond to. And it's one more opportunity for us who have put our lives in his hands to now trust him enough to put our resources in his hands. Let's do that. This concludes our podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Join us next time as Dr. Goodman continues through the Gospel of John with a message titled, His Lordship Over Hardship. I'm your host, John Parker, and this has been Hillcrest To Go. For more information, please contact us at hillcrest.church.